All right, here we go. Zach and Solly, how are you doing? Good, really good. Yeah, how are you feeling? <laughs> I was trying to work out what day it is to, to, before I answer, and it is Tuesday. So. <laughs> Going pretty well. Good, good, good. Zach? I mean, if anything, out of the three of us, you should be the one who we're asking how you're feeling and how you're doing because you're in lockdown. I feel okay. Like, I haven't been doing much really anyway. So, the lockdown hasn't felt too bad for me. But we just had that extra extension now, which um, I know the Victorians get a little bit restless now, but it's okay. I'm willing to get to the other side. Yeah, whatever it takes, right? That's right. That's right. But to get me through this lockdown, we're going to have a really good conversation today. And I'm actually really excited about this one because it's talking to our shared craft and our shared passion of digital learning. So keen to see where this conversation goes. But before we kind of get into the detail, like how did you guys get into instructional design and e-learning development? When I got into it, I don't even think it was called e-learning. It was, I think it was still called computer-based training. And I kind of started. Really? Yeah, it was called computer-based training. What year was that? Um, that's <laughs> 10 my age, but um, at least, so it was around 10 years ago. Right, and, right. I started okay. as a multimedia developer. And yeah. I didn't even know what role or what job that was going to take me into. Um, right. Because I'd never heard of a multimedia developer before. And it was almost like a jack of all trades and master of none. Right. And then I sort of fell into my first e-learning role, which was a multimedia developer role at the time. And I was like, oh, I can do, I can utilize all of my skills for this one job. That's amazing. But Solly, what was your journey? How did you get into instructional design? So in brief, when I was studying postgraduate um, chemical engineering at university, I was doing a lot of teaching, as you do, and I found that I actually enjoyed that more than my studies. So after university, I thought I'd get into um, adult learning and worked my way up from literally just doing document production into instructional design and then jumping across to digital learning at my current organization. Awesome. That just reminds me, the first instructional designer I worked with wasn't even called an instructional designer. I don't, again, I don't even think the term existed. They were just called writers back then who would write courses for computer-based training. So re- really old stuff. <laughs> is this all in the UK, can I ask? Is yeah, it, uh, this, this is in London. Yeah. Right. Okay. This must have been, I'm going to guess, around 2010, 2011. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And I got into the common authoring tools very, very late. So I, came, I had a background of building bespoke programs so i was from scratch from scratch so i understood all of the program the programmatic side and each individual element side so sometimes i'd spend three weeks just recording of and editing audio the next two weeks it'd be pure graphics the next week it'd be pure video so i had quite a good grassroots upbringing as it were yeah. so so then when i came to using some of the usual authoring tools i was like oh my god these tools do all the work for me <laughs> yeah so let's not also forget the limitations that some of these authoring tools pose as well yeah. i mean coming from your background dan um you know knowing how to code things from scratch on one hand while it's quite uh cumbersome and it takes a lot more time and effort and then there's a lot of work to go through just to get the ball to move from the left of the screen to the right side of the yeah. screen right it also gives you at the same time a lot of freedom 
because there are no limitations to what you can do. As long as you can make it do that through code, you are allowed to do it versus, you know, some of the industry standard authoring tools today. I mean, you know, Solly, you're getting into um, the wonderful realm of Rise and Articulate 360. And you'll understand really well what I mean when I say, you know, the limitations, right? Like if it doesn't exist as a functionality, then all of a sudden, you know, half of the pie has been wiped off for you and you just can't do that. You can't get the ball to bounce five times if the authoring tool only has a preset of it bouncing three times, right? Yeah. If you've done um, hardcore document production using a program called LaTeX or LaTeX, then you'll understand the analogy because Microsoft Word does a lot for you. But if you want to get really specific, you have to program it from the start, which can be annoying. But you know that if something goes wrong, it's entirely your fault and you can fix it. Whereas with something that's more locked down if it doesn't work you may not know why and you may not know how to fix it and then it gets frustrating it's weird exactly. it's weird though right but because for someone who's not used an authoring tool before it's probably not limiting at all it's probably the best thing since sliced bread or the vegemite as they say <laughs> <laughs> it's a step forward certainly but then also for me, because I'm only just getting to authoring tools now, there's definitely a huge step forward with some functionality, but then because I spend a lot of time on, you know, my mobile phone and other other devices, there's functions where I go, oh, I wonder how I could do that. And if Rise can't do it, then I get a little bit frustrated. But I, I understand Storyline can solve most of those those issues. Yeah, awesome. You've got a long, long, sometimes painful <laughs> road ahead of you, Sully, I, I must say. Yeah. <laughs> Even Storyline has a lot of limitations which are always fun quotes um, mm. to find, but they can be very frustrating as well. So, yeah, looking forward to hearing you, <laughs> you talk about your frustrations when you get there. Well, uh, bring it on, I guess. <laughs> um, actually, speaking of authoring tools, I remember now my first actual instance of digital learning was back in 2008 when I was a chemical engineering cadet, and I had to help someone design some gas safety training. And at the time, I didn't even know what the authoring tool was. I was just told to email this person with slides and what I wanted the slides to do with the various buttons. And the budget was very, very low. So I had to hand draw a lot of illustrations of people being asphyxiated by gases and that kind of <laughs> stuff. But I remember... I think I moved on from that particular role before I saw the final product. But I believe that someone must have put that into an early version of an authoring tool so that someone could click through and understand what's going on. And now I'm you know, doing it myself. But certainly, Zach, you've got a lot more experience fiddling at all the levels. I, and, and Zach, <laughs> I asked yet, but how did you get into mm. the world of e-learning development? The wonderful world of e-learning development. Well... I think, yeah, we, we must have had this from memory, had this conversation um, just in passing you and I, Dan, because we share a very similar path into the wonderful realm of L&D and, and e-learning developing. My background is actually in, in multimedia as well. And like you said, you know, early on, and this is because we're similar age as well, so very similar journey, maybe 15, 20, 15 years ago, the world of multimedia is such a undefined and ambiguous kind of place. But, you know, on one side, there are people that are kind of quite frightened by the fact that it's not well-defined and, you know, you don't really know what you're going to do after you finish multimedia yeah. um, in a tertiary, you know, kind of environment. But then on the other side also, it's kind of like, well, 
it, there's so much possibility and potential for it to be anything. And I share the exact same sentiment with you, Dan, is, is that I felt like a lot of the skills and knowledge that were taught whilst at the beginning didn't seem like they apply to one specific thing other than maybe, you know, dare I say, web development actually lended itself to a lot of the different things that we do today now because everything's so technology driven. And when you want to pass information through technology, multimedia becomes almost the core of what the driving force is to be able to achieve that, if you know what I mean. Mm. Yeah. So coming back to answering your question, my background is in multimedia. I got a, a few jobs out of uni as a multimedia developer. Also through uni, I had a major in visual communications and design. Yeah. So essentially, if you want to communicate anything through a visual digital media, that was kind of my jam. So I started working for a government agency back in Brisbane where I grew up. And um, it was just by pure chance, I caught a super lucky break. The multimedia department sat next to the HR department, which housed the L&D guys. And they just signed a contract with another state government agency who wanted to create a big suite of learning for the entirety of the, the Queensland kind of pop, uh, the Queensland public sector population. Being that it's such a geodiverse kind of spread out place to train, um, they said, we don't have the manpower nor the budget to be able to send trainers out there like they would normally do. So they kind of went, well, you know, why can't we partner with the multimedia guys, which is where I worked, and kind of design a course that can be digitally dispersed. Back then, again, very lucky, I was assigned or put on to the project as the technical lead. And through that, started working with the instructional designers. They were very traditional instructional designers. And through working with them, really understood how that kind of synergy happens. Yeah. Long story short, once the uh, project finished, I was asked as the project technical lead to present the actual product because the product is, is a kind of digital thing that you present right to kind of the big shot guys that set up there i think one of the guys that was in my audience was the under treasurer um, because the agency that had bought the project was the queensland state treasury and so the under treasurer was in my audience and then um i must have performed okay their big guns talked to us uh, spoke to our big guns and said hey you know that guy that kid back then i was you know in my sort of mid, uh, mid <laughs> early 20s that kid that did the presentation we really like what he did you should integrate him into the sort of HR or the learning department. And that's how I caught my first break um, is through doing a project, which also, I mean, both of you know that my passion really is in sort of IT and transformation projects. I think that it's because of that early exposure, you know, my first taste of the wonderful world of e-learning was through a project that maybe subliminally, I keep wanting to go back and do more. So I find myself taking projects left, right and center. Yeah, it's a pretty big gig gig for a technical delay as a, as a first job yeah i keep using the word lucky is because they didn't have anybody else that would put their hand up and wave around and go hey yeah. I, I think i could do this i mean i've never done an e-learning project prior to that zero but based on their scope and what they described they want to do i thought up a, a solution if you will yeah. that i thought i may be able to create and then i kind of went through and did it and yeah, and now, because obviously look, look the, now it's probably one of the hot jobs of today's world. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Can, Absolutely. Can I ask on that? Do you think that was because, and maybe this is similar for Dan, that's because at a previous point in time, 
it was either or. You were either in learning or you were in multimedia, IT, tech, and there was no one who could do both, or they were very rare. So you either had to have a learning person who was going to make a leap into tech or you had a tech person, I guess in your case, Zach, who was going to make a leap into learning. Yeah. Yeah, totally agree. I wasn't even in L and D. I was just in a like a multimedia powerhouse of a, of a company which just delivered um, maritime training. So I didn't even have exposure to L and D until at least three or four years into my career. Um, right. The one thing that I thought, because I did, although I enjoyed multimedia, studying multimedia, I did think that it would hamper me because I thought I need to be a specialist in either web development video creation graphic design so when i left university i was really concerned that i wouldn't find a job but the one thing that it did give me it allowed me to speak to specialists on a technical level even though i might not have known how to apply it or i didn't have the skill set i could understand what they were talking about and i could relay back to them on a technical level yeah Um, and i have a interesting question because i do see come up on lots of like job boards the idea of an instructional designer and e-learning developer like what is your idea of the difference between the two my simplistic brain says the instructional designer is like the architect and the developer is a bit like the builder who kind of once the architect gives the builder the designs then the e-learning developer goes off and builds it I like that analogy and I totally see the angle through which you're coming from. Mm. And it makes a lot of sense. Can I offer a different version of that? In my mind, I I think if you look at the movie industry, and this is related to a a documentary that I recently saw on Netflix about the story of Pixar. Now we all know that to make a movie, you need to have a director, you need to have a, you know, screenwriter, and then you need to have Mm -hmm. actors. And then you need to have the technical people that know how to edit the film, that, that, that know how to operate the camera and create the set. If you transpose or translate that to an e-learning or in the L&D world, I think the developers are more the people that you know, know how to create a beautiful shot. They know how to take the screenplay that the um, screenwriters have written and make it into a story that is engaging visually and tell a story in a specific kind of mood or specific kind of cinematography kind of angle. And then you've got the instructional designers who are kind of the screenplay writers because they're the people that figure out what is the flow of the story? What do we include? What don't we include? And they're the people that give you the beautiful story at the right pace, at the right scope. But them alone can't create the end result of the movie with the beautiful visual effects and all that kind of stuff without the e-learning developers, right? But uh, on the flip side, if you're a purist e-learning developer, you're probably not as good as writing a very well-paced, well-flowing story as what an instructional designer may be able to. And then you kind of put on top of that, I mentioned um, actors, and and this is in no way, shape, or form I'm supposed to offend anybody. (laughs) But I feel like, you know, when you, in a movie setting, when you've got a story, you've got a a screenplay written by the screenwriters, when you have, you know, all the technical guys here, you also need somebody to act it, right? So I think, in my mind, the facilitators sometimes can be kind of akin to the actors because they put meaning in the content that they deliver. In, in some sort of a way, it's also a bit of a performance because when you're standing in front of a classroom or, or a venue, 
you need to actually engage yeah. with your enthusiasm, with your knowledge, um, with the learners that are consuming your story, uh, the story that you're portraying. And then lastly, I think at the top of all of this, obviously, is the director. And I think that's the next big thing that maybe our industry needs to really look at is getting the right director to direct all the different pieces. And the director is really, I think, either a project lead or a learning lead, right? right who understands the difference of, the, of the, each of the little pieces and how best to utilize it all together. I think more often than not, at least in today's world, as far as my limited scope is, is concerned, we've put a lot of focus on getting the right actors or getting the right facilitators, getting the right you know, screenplay writers, getting the right instructional designers and so on and so forth, but not enough focus on the right person that leads the entire orchestra. So you've got brilliant people who are instructional designers, brilliant people who know how to develop, you know, cutting edge bells and whistles stuff in a technical sense and great facilitated presenters, but no one to orchestrate them. So do you find that person is missing in a, a lot of L&D teams? I do. Yeah. What do you think? Then this is open to both of you, obviously. I'm not too sure. I haven't thought that side of it. But first, as the instructional designer on this side, what, what is your what do you the think? other side of the story? I've had this discussion before, and I, I did like the analogy that you started with, Dan, where the instructional designer is maybe the architect. I would say maybe the developer is more the civil engineer right. to then convert the architect's um, fluffy coloured pencil drawings into this is the, the framework, and then maybe various pieces who are uh, people who look after producing the elements so someone will go off and make the video or someone will go off and do the graphic design to make sure that the background within the lms or in the, the module or whatever is happening so there's all those sort of construction needed that was one way i was, I was thinking of that the only reason i have an issue with that is because i have a friend who's an actual architect and <laughs> she tells me off uh, when, when i when i talk about and not, not that I, I do it myself but when and she says you know strictly speaking in australia you need to have a license and a degree to be an architect so you shouldn't call yourself an architect if you're not but that aside the other way i was thinking about it um to go off sax analogy was um thinking about maybe the instructional designer being sort of the composer or the choreographer to make a link to your previous discussion with Kat around dance. And then the developer is sort of maybe the stage manager who makes sure that sound and light and all of that is set up to make the production happen. But then to your point, you're still missing a conductor or someone who during the actual event makes it all happen and then what i'm quite curious about is in in zach's analogy about the director or in my one about the conductor is what does that look like for digital learning when often all of the production happens from start to finish before the learner actually gets to it because it's not a synchronous live event that, yeah that's a really good question you know in a traditional sense there is the conductor who plays a really important role in bringing everyone together and a lot of the times we find that that person is missing in our projects or in our kind of environment but when it comes to um, a specifically digital project so you're really just creating a piece of e-learning let's say for example similar to when pixar first started creating completely digitally animated films so all of a sudden you can see they didn't really need an actor. And the director is no longer the person that's standing at a studio physically telling the actor what kind of emotion to put in. All of those roles 
basically got amalgamated down to a handful of people who are the digital animators, the technical guys. The technical guys, not only do they need to understand how to create the emotion, tell the story, um, translate the flow of the entire piece, but they also need the technical part to be able to make it happen on screen. So then they became the director as well as a little bit of the technical creators. So that was going to roll in nicely to our next question, kind of, which is, can someone be both an exceptional instructional designer and an exceptional e-learn developer? I'll let you take this one, Sully. <laughs> I, I'm going to give an answer that's both a yes and a no. I think it it's a bit of a cop-out answer, but it depends on the scale. And also, as you're probably aware, in the L&D industry, a lot of people are sole operators or the company's only able to hire a single learning person or it's part of an HR person's role. It's rare, I think, for most companies to have a huge team. Um, so in that sense, depending on the scale, a lot of people have to be, whether they like it or not, the designer and developer. And you see that in job ads all the time. You have to design and you must know how to use Storyline, Captivate and uh, eBay, whatever, you know, stuff. <laughs> but then I think when it comes to, and then to, to go back to the movie analogy, if you're making a little video on Snapchat or TikTok or whatever people are doing, you can do it all on your own. Yeah. But if you're trying to make something huge, as you know, I'm sure, Zach, you, you when you're working for the government, you know, you've got heaps of people. This has got to go out to thousands of people. It's got to be functional for a year or more. Then that's when I think the answer is... Even if, not even that someone can't, it's just not sensible to. Yeah, I think that's the crux of the issue here. And I loved what you said, Solly, is that Mm. what I heard is two things, right? Mm. One is the scale. The scale of what you're trying to produce absolutely has a massive impact in determining whether or not one person can play all the different, um, can wear all the hats, or you definitely need different people. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is, I think it's not so much whether or not one person can be great at both, but rather, is it actually viable or is it, is it actually practical to have one person be extremely awesome at both, right? So if we come back to the movie thing, right, um, great actors a lot of the times never make it to being amazing directors. And I'm sure there are people that operate the cameras in the background who dabble in acting as well. But like, what is the immediate benefit of being good at both when really you are only going to be utilized one at a time and having whilst having a knowledge on the in the other aspects is great to perform really well in doing what you do so it's great for an actor to know what a director does and understand how directing all works but then beyond that there's no real incentive for them to be the best director there is parts just understanding what directing is about if they're an actor an actor being a gold star director as well isn't going to make them a better actor and vice versa. So I think an e-learning developer, it's definitely necessary and preferred if a, an e-learning developer also knows you know, what instructional design is all about and how to do it and what does good look like. But then beyond that, I don't think there's a lot of incentive or there's not a lot of benefit for an e-learning developer to also be a fantastic, awesome instructional designer Mm. beyond obviously personal gains like if there's a person who is a contractor being absolutely gunning at both Mm. obviously we get them 
you know, a lot of jobs because they play in both markets. Mm. But in terms of how good they are doing one or the other, I don't think it, it has a massive impact if you're, you know, a superstar at both. Yeah, I think the type of content that's been delivered now digitally has changed. So I think if you think three or four years ago, it was probably okay to be pretty good or average at both because the type of content was pretty much just a copy and paste from a PowerPoint deck into into a storyline. I think now where the content is changing and we're expecting, well, we want the learner to experience something as and apply their learning rather than just reading materials. I think the skill sets are now slightly morphing into a place where they need to be quite separate. Yeah. Where, where the developer is building the whole experience using all the different tools that they have available to them. And the instructional designer is building or putting together that whole design piece and really starting to reimagine the, the possible and what can be applied through a digital lens. Agree. Yeah, I I agree, and I think that's where, and I, this is a phrase that I've borrowed from a previous employer, where a, a common language of sorts is needed. And so while there might be quite a distinct separation now, and I find this sometimes, given that I'm not an experienced developer, I'll be talking to the developer and saying, "I need something that looks like this," and I might even just you know send a screenshot from some web page with some functionality. I was trying to describe to someone uh, the way I needed a Google site to work. And I said, look, it needs to be kind of like online shopping and I need to you know, filter by the color of the jeans and the brand, but I don't need to filter by the size yet. And that was a bit clumsy, but we got there in the end. So I think that's going back to your original question. And Zach, you mentioned this as well. Having some knowledge helps, but also I think it's kind of good when you don't have all the knowledge because then you don't, both sides don't come to it with a preconceived notion of something that's already fixed and not possible. Um, both people can go, well, what about this? And both sides go, let me see if I can make it work. The designer can go, let me see if I can rework the activity to suit the tech and the tech person might go, let me see if I can program something in to make it work the way you'd like. What do you think, Dan? Do you think, I mean, throwing your own question back on you, do you think it's possible to be absolutely amazing at both instructional design and e-learning developing? Yeah, not now. I think if I, I think like today, I don't think so. I think because of the type of content now starting to deliver, I think you just need to be in a single-minded headspace to design it, and then you need a single-minded headspace to be able to build it. Yeah, um, totally, totally yeah, agree. Yeah. So my next question, actually, was can you successfully convert train into digital whilst still maintaining maybe some face-to-face elements? You're going to have to define what successful means. Do you mean virtual plus digital or yes so can we create the same experience in a face-to-face environment and turn it into a complete digital solution thinking of covid as well where it's where we've Mm -hmm. accelerated the need we can no longer go face-to-face or fly around the world delivering face-to-face training Mm -hmm. with the digital tools that are now available in, in the market can we recreate some of those experiences? For example, maybe times where we ask the learner to stop and reflect on their learning or 
have breakout rooms where they have where they're deep in discussion. Can that be created in a digital way? Who wants to go first? I'm happy to go first. Yeah, please go first. I'm happy to go first because I've literally been asked that question. That was a project that I was working on earlier this year. Where so to answer your question in short, I think can you have something exactly the same? No. Can you have something that got this very similar outcome? Yes. And can you at times have something with an even better outcome? I think very much yes. The example being one part that I really like about digital learning is that particularly when it comes to understanding a concept is that the individual can take as much time as they need to understand the concept. Whereas if it was a even a virtual session and the facilitator is given 15 minutes to describe and unpack the concept, if, you under, if it's going to take you 30 minutes, you need to Google a few more words or review some fundamental learning, you might get left behind. Or, you know, if you've kind of got most of it, then you might slip into a coma out of boredom. So I think that, um, yeah, same, not possible, similar, very possible, even better, also quite possible, which is why I'm excited about um, digital is because it provides people the option to go at their own pace when it comes to the concept learning and application. If it takes you a week to try something out or a day, then you can do that. And I think that's one thing that maybe a traditional in-person, even a virtual session can't offer and also negatively impact someone's confidence mm. when they feel like not keeping up is a reason why they're not doing well when really it's just if you provided them the time that suits them, they would do just as well. So I've gone a little bit off topic, but yes, I think it's very possible. Do you yeah. think it takes us a little bit more time to design as opposed to a face-to-face session? to really think about how you're going to create that similar impact? I think it. if you're someone who's used to designing and facilitating your own sessions, then it will take you a lot more time because you probably don't write a lot of stuff down because yeah. it's still in your head or you know, you've written yourself a very short facilitator guide because you just remember how to do it all. Mm-hmm. If you're used to having to write facilitator guides or directions for others – I don't think it'll take you an excessive amount of extra time because you're used to having to set up for the facilitation, whether that be a program asking a learner to reflect or whether that be a person asking a learner to share their experience. What do you think, Zach? I really like the answer that Solly gave. It's really not about mimicking or duplicating when we clearly have a different set of parameters available to us at this point in time. I think we really need to let go of how do we try and create something with an entirely different set of tools that don't allow us to create the same journey, but somehow also allows us to achieve the same result. We need to let go of the journey and look at the end result, learning outcomes, right? Mm. Whether or not we're in a classroom is just the journey of getting to that outcome. If we strip away all of that and any kind of emotional attachment that some of us or most of us have with the nostalgia of being in a classroom and the good old days of workshops and all that kind of stuff and kind of really go, at the end of the day, what are we really trying to achieve? Mm. Is that getting the knowledge or getting the behavioral change or getting the knowledge transfer and then holding on to that 
and going with the parameters and tools that we have available to us, how do we reimagine getting to those results? It's like before airplanes were invented, before cars were invented, there was um, horse-drawn carts and sea travel. And so imagine if in the year 2020, we're still trying to work out how do we mimic a four-month cross-Atlantic trip without being in the sea and without using a ship? It's just not the point. The point is you want to get from point A to point B. And we've got all this other technology now that is electrical, electric cars, you know, fuel, uh, gas, you know, traditional petrol cars. We've got drones even. The method in which you achieve your results really don't matter. It's about recognizing the results you want to achieve and then seeing what tools you have available to you and making those tools work for you to get to that result. And if that means that nobody's in a room and there is no workshops and there is no facilitators, then so be it. But I'm not saying that that's the case. I'm just saying that it's about the result. It's about the end goal as opposed to mimicking what we had before and trying to get as close to that as possible. Yeah, that's what I think has been a common trend in how we design learning now. It's always been design-led rather than tools-led, especially when the common tools like Articulate come out. It was all about, oh, we've got all of these bells and whistles, so let's, let's use every bell and Every mm-hmm. now it's now it's a case of let's put that all to side and let's just think about how we want the learner to experience it yeah and then how do the tools and the applications support that and how do we create that impact with the learning how can they apply and experience what they're what they're learning um and it goes to what Sully said how can they um you're not compromising their confidence because they're doing it in a safe space um they can do it when they like how they like and you can do it to, you can train 100,000 people in one go rather than just yep. 10 people in, in a room. And they can be trained at all various different times. You've got new staff coming on that also knows, needs to know how to do A, B, and C. Six months down the track, they can do that then, mm. right? Yeah. Yeah. I think to talk about, you know, using bells and whistles, sometimes I refer to that as digital dazzle, as in <laughs> just because we can doesn't mean we should. And even today, even though I'm kind of newer to the authoring tools, I definitely see examples where it's the same version of when PowerPoint came out and everyone just started using a million uh, clip arts or they would animate it so every single letter of the word would appear one at a time. And I see people doing that today. And it's like, well, okay, just because you can doesn't mean we have to. It is okay just to have a sentence right there, let them read it, move on. Yeah. <laughs> it, yeah. might, it might have been exciting to have all these little functions, but if learners are anything like me, they've got very short attention spans, particularly in corporate learning. People don't say, I'm going to set aside seven hours to do my learning at my leisure. It's got to be to the point, super practical, super useful. And the other digital angle that I really like that I'm not sure I've explored personally in my work so far is the automated assignment of learning. I was talking to a friend the other day and he's he's set up a customized LMS that will automatically send pieces of relevant learning to salespeople based on their sales figures. So, if they're selling really well in this product but not so much in another product, the LMS will send them really short pieces of learning to help bolster that. So, I think there's things like that where, again, it's scale and it's scale and speed that 
you could look at it as, oh, we're doing it because we can't do it the traditional way. Or you could also look at it as that this is an opportunity for us to do it anyway. Mm. Yeah. So let's do it. Mm. That's what I'm seeing. So I'm, I'm seeing like the evolution of the LMS now almost being like your Netflix for learning now so you yeah so you don't even need to do anything so it's like when you go on something like youtube and when you go on youtube it's already pre-recommended some videos based on all of the e-learning videos that you that you watch on a regular basis uh, really harnessing the power of big data right i mean you know everyone else is doing it in all the other industries i remember i think this started maybe in 2016 where everyone in the lnd industry um at least in sydney corporate L&D was talking about their LMS or their learning platform um, being the next Netflix of learning. And that was the massive buzzword. And um, through my being at different, a few different places over the past few years, I've really seen companies who have done this really, really well. Like you said, Zoli, they've partnered with other areas of the business who maybe look after employee data and coupled with the content that they have, which are short, sharp, and sweet, and anywhere, anytime, they can actually, the more you engage with the learning platform, the more the system through AI understands where you're trying to go in terms of your own development and what you're lacking and what you might need and preemptively give that to you. And I think that's definitely the way of the future, but the uptake rate across the board in larger companies across Sydney or Australia or even have been quite staggered, I feel. Some people are really taking, you know, going in their strides and really taking this up and, and others are not as far along. Can I just add to that? It's, um, again, so previously I was likening, you know, use of certain authoring tools to when PowerPoint came out and everyone was, was excited. I did have a thought today, which is maybe calling for the death of an LMS, <laughs> which is possibly quite extreme. I was thinking about you know, a module I'm building at the moment and there's a, several of them and I did wonder, am I building a number of modules to sit on an LMS in a way that is actually quite traditional in that it's akin to going to a library going, I need a book on how to be a team leader. I'm going to go to the library, get my little book on how to be a team leader, read the book, maybe try some activities out in the book and then go back because I don't want a late fee. I wondered whether there's going to be a point which some learning needs to stop being like that, even if it's bite-sized learning or micro-learning or whatever you want to call it. That's, I guess you could say that's getting a magazine from the library or getting a children's book. (laughs) I don't know. So what I was getting at is the next step I would like to see, and I don't know if this exists in the world yet, is where... To your point, Zach, the the LMS and the learning support, which may not even be a module, is linked not only to employee data that sits somewhere in an HR system, but also live employee performance. For example, I'm sure you've all seen those ads for Grammarly, which suggests that it can help you with your writing. I think it'd be really good if, say, in your workplace email system, whether that's Outlook or Gmail, that somehow that is gathering data about how often you misspelling things, for example, and then that's linking into your HR data and also into your LMS, and then maybe that's going to beef up the AI that's helping you improve your writing. So, you don't even necessarily know it, and then you don't have to go and check out the book on how to improve your writing. I think that would be really cool. Yeah, I think it's starting to go in that direction. We're already seeing 
learning experience platform will start to pop up now. So I think they're just going to get even better. So even when, even on your, your first day, when you start your, your new job, you're going to have all these things pointing to you. Okay. You need to know how to navigate yourself around the office. I don't know when we're going to be going, be going back to the office, but you know mm. what I mean? Here's where the bathroom is. Here's where the mm. kitchen is. Here's where your desk is. I think we're going to get to a stage where we're just being provided learning based on what we need at, at a certain point of time. And what you're finding tricky, like if you, so we've had a new starter start and he's learning to use the Google suite for the first time. Mm. So I'd love to think at some point, point without being creepy there's data being captured about the speed with which or lack of he's clicking around different google things and that information would go somewhere to say he needs help trying to work out how to share google documents i'm totally of the same sentiment up until this discussion right so everything that we've discussed <laughs> has always been like i've just gone yep this is the way the future this is how we need to do this and and we're also seeing companies that are actually doing this and have been doing this for the last few years and doing it really good but just as we were talking about this just then, a thought popped in my mind, right? When does it become too far? Because I was just thinking, whilst it would be really good for my learning technology or platform or whatever you want to call it, mm. um, to preempt what I need based on my behavioral pattern when I'm interacting with the company computer, let's say, for example, mm. I also at the moment feel really good when I go and Google search for something and find the answer and select the right answer for me for the sake of this discussion. If I find myself in a position where I need to do pivot tables, like advanced pivot tables, I go and Google it, right? As most people, mm. you know, 1.2 trillion results come up over, you know, 35, eight different pages. And I go through it as everyone will. When I find the one that suits me, I almost get this kind of dopamine hit that I found a nugget of gold I found the exact thing that I'm looking for in terms of knowledge. When does what we're talking about with harnessing big data and all that kind of stuff and providing preemptively providing learning become overstretched so that we land at a place, it's almost like we don't have to go to the kitchen to eat. The kitchen has this thing that knows when I'm hungry. It also knows what I feel like tonight, whether it be Macca's, KFC or Tetsuya's from the city. And it puts it in front of my face at the exact time that I'm hungry and all I got to do is eat it. Where then becomes the balance? So I think it just comes down to maybe your, your own barriers that you put in place. But just going back to like the YouTube or the Netflix thing with my, with the suggestions, mm. most of the time, if I see a recommendation, I generally don't select it. And I, I still like the fact that I'm choosing something that I want to watch when I want to watch it. There'll be some times when I might click on the recommendation. But I still have that element of control that I can select or even when I go on YouTube or Google something, I might not necessarily select the first thing that I see. Yeah, I'll still have a search and I still make an informed decision based on maybe the little thumbnail, the little descriptions I see before yeah. I, I decide on what the, I'm going to click on. There's still a certain level of I choose from, you know, yeah. the, the handful or the 20 or the 30 that's presented to me. So then is the question that we need to get, we collectively need to get to a stage where we have enough content to be able to do that. Because based on what you just said, Dan, Netflix at any given time is recommending to you 20 or more clips or movies 
that you might be interested in watching because they have enough content to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Whereas, dare I say, most of the companies right now in corporate L and D in that space for the same thing, there might be a handful of applicable ones for the same topic. There might be a handful of applicable learning assets, which it really isn't enough to provide you with a selection when it wants to recommend you something. Mm. It, it's a really tough one because I think you still need help. So you could be working for an organization that has a hundred thousand assets and you can't possibly cipher through all of those at once. So I think then is I think there's an element of you still need a machine or a system to help you filter through a lot of that stuff. But at the end of the day, you still have that control to select which one that you want to do. I was going to first of all congratulate you, Zach. I think that's a very good point because from the little bit of neuroscience that I have studied on on how people learn, there's definitely a huge element of if you self-initiated and you decide when and how to apply and try it, then you're more likely to get that dopamine hit to reinforce the wiring that goes, I'm going to remember this or I'm going to make it happen again next time. So there's maybe a part in there about the type of learning. So maybe the examples I provided were people don't really care. If, you just, you know, if the machine fixes my spelling, that's great. I don't need to know. And then with the choice part, maybe there's, we do need to provide an opportunity for people to have that dopamine hit, but maybe it's not choice of asset. Maybe instead it's here's a one-minute version, a 10-minute version or a one-hour version. So you're still making a choice. I don't know if that'll work. I'm not a neuroscientist. But maybe it's that sort of thing where instead of having thousands of different assets, it's actually having the same asset in different size bytes or it will be here's the same asset would you rather have an audio would you rather have a screencast or would you rather have a video where someone talks you through it so it's exact same asset but then the choice is people are happy enough hopefully the algorithms are working that the asset core content is correct and it's the best fit but they're still making choice around how they learn or it might be something around like when you, when a computer update arrives, they get the choice of do you want to do you want to pause what you're doing right now and learn the thing, or do you want to click remind me in an hour and I'll come back to it after lunch? And there's still some sense of choice there. And then yes, there's the fundamental one about if the algorithm's not providing the best options, then it'll at least go here's three things I think. Do you want to pick which one? So I guess we'll have to see. The other thing I was going to actually add though is I wonder if when we do get to this we would want to have an algorithm that deliberately provides something that maybe is outside of your sphere, not that something you don't want, to avoid sort of the learning asset assignment equivalent of echo chambers and bias where, because I'm sure you've done that on Netflix. The Facebook phenomenon, right? Yeah, um, the bubble, you know, I'm sure you've done this before on Netflix and, and, you know, you go, actually, what is that thing? I'll have a look. Wow, that was fantastic. It's a great, I would never would have necessarily picked it, either it's just throwing it at me to see what I think, or it is somehow other really worked out that I might actually really like this. So I think, again, in the algorithms and stuff, there's maybe an element of adding those things, which then also could be another version of the choice, where it's like, here's the thing I think you really want, but you also could just find this really interesting and helpful. Yeah, I think um, 
I think it comes down to not one size fits all anymore. So you need to kind of mm-hmm. cater for all different learning styles. Yeah, I don't know if an answer come out of all of that. It just made me more confused. <laughs> <laughs> maybe it's not. Maybe we're not on a, on an endeavor to find an, an answer today and right now, right? Maybe it's just an exchange of uh, stimulating thoughts, so that that concept of food for thought, right? These are all food for thought, and hopefully down the track, you know, someone somewhere can add to it or derive something from these thoughts that we've put out and move one maybe baby step closer to the actual answer. I think definitely by asking the questions, Dan, and by having this podcast (laughs) um, series, then you're definitely making steps towards exploring this. So right now it's just a discussion, but at some point people's discussions hopefully turn into a bit of an experiment. Let's trial something. Let's connect with the right people and ask the right questions, see where we need to go so that you know, you don't end up some point where whatever you're providing for your learners is significantly outdated or is significantly still too much like a sheep dip and everyone's like, well, I just want something that's personalized. And and now it's the year 2050 and I understand that personalized learning is very possible and affordable and why aren't we doing it? That's right. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting space. As terrible as COVID has been, I think what it's done is just turbocharged um, digital application particularly for learning i'm really excited to see where it goes and that was probably one of the triggers to launching a podcast like this just to see what people are thinking and seeing where the whole world of digital is going to go i'm going to ask you one final question before we wrap up sure and that is do you find it easier to win people over now when it comes to digital or do you still find you're getting and maybe particularly with face-to-face trainers who may be a little bit more nervous around converting their face-to-face training into a virtual or digital solution, is it getting easier to win them over or is it still quite difficult? And if it is still quite difficult, how do you win them over? There's, I'm going to jump in there. Sorry, Sully. I'm going to jump in here and say, I don't think it is and I don't think it ever will be um, getting easier to convince people because this is an issue fundamentally that has two sides to it. One side, and it's a very lopsided side, is people's livelihoods. So if you're engaged in a mutual exchange of ideas with somebody who doesn't have any kind of conflict of interest and is purely basing their opinion or what they believe in through facts, then yeah, I think through what we've seen in the past eight, nine months through with COVID and, and all that kind of stuff, it will be easy to convince someone that digital is the way to go. But if you're talking to somebody who has an intrinsic tie with keeping, you know, a specific format of learning going because their livelihoods are based on that format being alive, then doesn't matter what happens to the world, I don't think it'll be easier to convince them, especially if transitioning across to utilizing a different set of technologies isn't really on the roadmap for these people. So if you're asking the first half, which is, are people going to be more open to the idea? I think the answer is definitely yes through what we've seen. But if the question is, is it through what we've seen, is it easier to convince people who traditionally are involved in face-to-face learning to convince them to come over to the dark side, then I think it's a different set of answers there. Mm. 
before I ask you, sorry, I think it's it's always an interesting one because I think the assumption is that we're taking the face-to-face facilitators funder away or we're taking their job away. I, I don't really see it like that at all. I've always seen it as let's take all of the theory-based stuff out because that can be turned digital and scalable. And then the time that we do have in a virtual or face-to-face environment we can spend more time on the application and the deep thinking so i think it's just maybe around the messaging on top of i think we need to put the stuff in front of them and show them as well how digital can assist and support rather than be like an enemy yeah i think that's definitely true is talking one way i talk about is redistributing facilitation Mm -hmm. not the facilitator what does facilitation look like and where can that be redistributed or imagined digitally or virtually for scale and speed? Um, To answer your original question, I think some parts of this have gotten easier just because I've had had to think about it and articulate it. So, my list of approaches that I can use with various stakeholders is now more front of mind, now better articulated about why, even if you've been told to go digital, why this is going to be good and then helpful and cost-effective and all those sorts of things. One thing that I do think is important, and this is just because I have a personal <laughs> extreme distaste for, <laughs> for laboring too much on the doom and gloom, which is why I don't like it when people say it's a VUCA world and, you know, the, thing, the world is ending or it's unprecedented times, like we get it, we know, just move on. I think it's important. I do. I also do think this is the way human brains work because they respond when the messages are far more positive. It's like we get that we can't do a lot of stuff because people are not flying everywhere. And that will get you part of the way with the argument. But I think it's important that that's not the bulk of the argument. And instead, it's even if the pandemic didn't happen, digital and virtual and blended and all that is an opportunity to provide people choice. And if someone's you know, a part-time worker, then maybe digital is going to be more accessible for them. Or if someone is based in an office that's far away, a virtual session is also going to be more inclusive of them. So, even if, as I said, even if it hadn't happened, this is a great opportunity for us to start to use these um, modalities to be more inclusive, to provide more choice, uh, to get more feedback faster and in real time, to iterate what we're doing. And I think that's probably going to last more when it comes to talking to the stakeholders because it's going to be accessing and eating into the goodness of digital and virtual. Can I just add one thing? I want to really congratulate the three of us. <laughs> for go, for, I really, really want to congratulate the three of us uh, on a lighter side, right? <laughs> Towards the end of this chat, congratulating us that none of us through the entire hour or so used the word pivot once. <laughs> <laughs> I really, yeah, I just yeah. I, I had to put that in there. It's one of those marker words. Or disrupt. Um, or disrupt. <laughs> people thinking back to oh, 2020, oh. you know, people who worked in the corporate sector are going to hear, uh, you know, it'll be in the year 2037 and somebody will say pivot and then everyone's mind will go straight back to 2020 because every single person, every single place is saying pivot and I'm congratulating us for you that. You know what? Now. It reminds me a bit like, remember the, the dance move, the dab? Because all the kids started dabbing, I just refused to do it. 
to use <laughs> yeah just, just because everyone else is doing it and i think pivot is another one of those those, those things i just Same. i can't use it because everyone else is using it yeah <laughs> stop trying to make fetch happen <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> guys that was awesome thank you very much for joining i'm sure we're probably going to have a lot more conversations around this because there's far too much to talk about yeah, it feels like we've only chipped a slight, tiny bit off of the, the story today. Agreed. All right. Until next time. All right.